Our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess together as your people and we affirm this morning that it is not by accident that we are here. It is by your divine and sovereign providence that we are gathered in the midst of your people this morning to hear your God-breathed word, which is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. This God-breathed word is profitable, and we are here by your providence because you desire and have ordained from before the foundations of the world that it would profit us today. Because there are people here who feel as if their life is spinning out of control. And Jesus, they need to see a vision of a king who sits in the heavens through whom all things were created and who upholds all things by the word of his power. They need to see a Jesus who flung the stars into the sky and keeps them rotating in their ordained orbit. They need to see a Jesus who ordains all things whatsoever come to pass and that nothing in their life is transpiring that has not passed through your hands. I ask you by your spirit to open their eyes to see you. And there are some who are here who are burdened underneath a weight of sin and they, they come this morning wondering if they are forgiven and wondering if they are accepted into the very presence of the Holy One. And they need to see a Jesus who is a great high priest who having made purification for sin sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. They need to see a Jesus who because he is raised and lives forevermore is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And so I ask you that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open up their eyes that they would see a big Savior who is able and willing to save anyone who will believe. And Lord, undoubtedly, there are some who are here who come cold, emotionless, divided. And whether they know it or not, they're in danger of drifting away and neglecting so great a salvation. And they need to see a Jesus who is supremely worth pursuing and following to the very end of our days through the deserts and through the trials and through the tribulations. They need to see a Jesus who is supremely valuable. A Jesus before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I ask by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would open their eyes to behold the King who is seated upon a throne. All of creation bowing before His feet. Help us to see Jesus. We plead this 
in faith. In the name of Jesus, the Son of the living God. And all of God's people said, The immense value and the abiding relevance of the book of Hebrews rests upon a very important assumption, an assumption which sadly cannot be assumed in many evangelical churches. This basic assumption is this, okay? You need to know this if the thrust of the book of Hebrews is going to make sense to you. How you finish the Christian life is every bit as important as how you begin, That's the assumption. And it's necessary that we establish this truth from the very outset because Hebrews was written for one overarching purpose. It is what the author himself calls in Hebrews 13.22 a word of exhortation. A word of exhortation. But to what is the author exhorting the congregation? What is he exhorting us to? Well, I want you to listen and I'm going to trace our way through the pages of this book, and I want you to see if you can discern the author's primary heart-wrenching concern for his people. Okay? So you listen. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm. To the end. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins. Only a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire that will consume his adversaries. Chapter 10 and verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away Your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And that, beloved, is just a small sampling of the warnings and exhortations and encouragements which the author gives to the congregation and which the Spirit gives to us today. The book of Hebrews assumes the biblical truth that it is only those who persevere to the end who will be saved. And the author is deeply, deeply concerned because a congregation of people with whom he is acquainted and for whom he feels a deep affection is in danger of drifting away from the hope that is in Christ and therefore neglecting the great salvation that is found only in him. 
And I feel the author's alarm. I share his concern. I have presided over funerals standing beside the caskets of people who from outward appearances did not endure to the end. Did not persevere. Did not hold fast the confession of their hope firm without wavering. And my heart throbs with a passion that that would never happen to any of you. How does it happen? What, what causes people to drop out of the race? What causes people to drift away on the, on the tides of life, away from their mooring to the gospel of Christ? What causes this? Well, a variety of reasons. Some drop out of the race because, Hebrews chapter 12, they become entangled by the deceitfulness of sin. Others drop out because they have ceased to see Jesus as irresistibly compelling and therefore worthy of a wholehearted, lifelong pursuit of Him through the deserts and through the valleys and through the tribulations. Still others decide that their original decision to follow Christ was a mistake because they no longer find the truth claims of the Christian faith to be compelling and trustworthy. In the book of Hebrews, it seems that persecution had a hand in tempting, and in some cases causing, the congregation to whom he writes to drift away from the hope of Christ. See, our faith comes at a cost, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But whatever the cause of this drift, whatever the cause of this falling away the answer is the same. The antidote is the same. Whether it be in the first century in a Jewish Christian context or in the 21st century in First Baptist Nixa, the answer is the same. We need to see Jesus. And so in the midst of this imminent and pressing danger that is absolutely breaking his heart, he sits down and he writes the single greatest defense of the supremacy of Christ ever written. The picture of Jesus that is presented in these 13 chapters is breathtaking. He is the full and final revelation of God, the one through whom the world was made. He is the exalted King who is enthroned far above the angels. He is God's only begotten Son and therefore far superior to Moses who was merely the servant. He is the great High Priest who has mediated a new and better covenant. By the presentation of a new and better sacrifice. He is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And he is the sacrificial lamb who offered himself upon the altar of God's judgment. By virtue of his resurrection, he remains our high priest forever. And therefore is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him. As he always lives to make intercession for us. He is the great shepherd of the sheep whom God raised from the dead through the blood of the eternal covenant. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. And beloved, I want nothing more than to shepherd you through this life as you pursue your joy in Christ. Through times of grief, 
through times of trial and through times of tribulation, through times of failure, through times of persecution, through the deserts. I want to shepherd you through this life as we pursue this Jesus together in order that at the end of your days I can stand beside your casket and rejoice with your brothers and sisters that you persevered to the end and you have received the crown of life which awaits all those who endure. That's what I want and that's what you want, Lord willing. And that's why we're in Hebrews. That's why we're going to unveil together this magnificent portrait of Christ and fix our eyes upon a Jesus who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. Some of you who are here undoubtedly need to have your faith authored. You're not sure who this Jesus is. You're not sure if he's compelling enough to give your life to. You're not sure if all that I've said about him thus far is is trustworthy and true. Well, I want to tell you that you're in the right place because Jesus is the author of faith and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And who knows that he may be pleased this morning or in this series to snap the finger of his word and spark faith in your heart. He does it. And for those of us who are here, He's also the perfecter, the finisher of faith. He's the answer for cold hearts. He's the answer for the drift away. He's the answer for the neglect of so great a salvation. He starts and he finishes, and he finishes everything that he starts. We need this Jesus, which is why we're in Hebrews. My aim and my prayer is that we will discover in these pages a Jesus who is worth living for, worth giving everything for, Hebrews chapter 12, worth dying for, if only we may know Him and be welcomed into the grace and the joy of His presence into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have lofty aims in this series in Hebrews. We're aiming for our salvation. While much of the background of the book of Hebrews is shrouded in mystery, it would serve us well in this introductory sermon to spend just a few moments and try to establish some context for this book. Okay, Try and answer just a few of the questions. We're going to deal with five introductory questions. Delving into any one of these questions could take us the entirety of our time this morning. So we're only going to take a brief stab at each one of them. And I'm just going to give you my best guess as to their answer. But only one of these questions can be known with any degree of certainty. But we at least need to get in our mind a bit of the context in which this was written. So question number one we need to answer. What is Hebrews? Is it a letter? Is it a theological treatise? Is it a sermon? Is it all of the above? And the answer is yes. It doesn't start like a letter. It doesn't proceed like a letter, but it concludes like a letter. It's it's so doctrinal and theological and tightly reasoned that it seems like, like a theological book, like a treatise, like a tract on the divinity and the supremacy of Christ. But it ends like a letter and it preaches like a sermon. 
It bears the style of a exhortation. In fact, the author himself calls it a word of exhortation. It's too impassioned. It's too application-driven to be merely a theological essay. In other words, it preaches. If I was to start in Hebrews chapter 1 and just read the whole thing with passion in my voice, you would think that you had just been preached to. Written down and intended to be read aloud to the congregation to which it was written. So I think my best answer, if you're going to ask me what is it, I'm probably going to have some slips of the tongues in the course of this series and call it a letter. I'll probably call it a book. What I actually think it is is a written sermon. I think it's a written sermon that the author penned and sent to this congregation, which he intended for one in the congregation, probably an elder, to stand up and to read, and it would have that kind of force to the gathered people of God. Who wrote Hebrews? (laughs) That's the question, isn't it? The debate over the authorship of Hebrews has raged for 2,000 years. Why? Because the author doesn't identify himself. If you have the epistle, to the, the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews at the top of this page, I want you to know that that was only added in 1611 when the King James Bible was translated. It's not in the original. The author doesn't identify himself, but he's obviously well known to the congregation to which he writes. No need for identification, right? Here's what we know about the author from the internal evidence of the text itself. We know that he wrote in a very high level, like university level Greek. We know that he quoted from the Greek Old Testament. We know that he was a brilliant theologian. He was well versed in Old Testament history and Old Covenant worship. He's an eloquent writer and he's a powerful preacher and he's skilled in the ancient art of rhetoric. So if we were to wrap all that up, we could say this. In short, he is a highly educated, Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured, Jewish Christian. Now, historically, there's been a lot of opinions as to who wrote this sermon. Some have considered Paul to be the author. Probably not. If you read the 13 letters of Paul that we have and compare it with Hebrews, they don't look very much alike. They bear some resemblances, but the differences are greater than the similarities. Others have ventured the name of Barnabas, which is an attractive option because Barnabas was a Levite, Acts 4.36, who was therefore very familiar with the temple practices and the priesthood. Luke has been mentioned because of the very high style of Greek and its similarities with the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts and his association with the Apostle Paul. Maybe that accounts for some of the similarities with Paul's thought. And it's, of course, possible that someone wrote it that we don't even know. Maybe his name never appears in the New Testament, but he was of the second generation and was well known to the apostles. And therefore, when his letter is received, it's received with a degree of apostolic authority. For my part, I'm going to name drop here also for the part of Martin Luther. I think Apollos wrote the sermon to the Hebrews. Apollos is a man described by Luke in Acts chapter 19 as a Jew, check, an eloquent man, check, mighty in the scriptures, is there any doubt about that, who was instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, able to speak and teach accurately the things concerning Jesus. Luke tells us that he spoke boldly in the synagogue of Ephesus. 
who by his teaching was able to greatly help those who had believed through grace and who powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now, it's just a guess, but if that doesn't describe the author of Hebrews, I don't really know what does. So I'm going I'm to guess that Apollos is the author, but it's not named, it's just a guess. Take it with a grain of salt. Who's it written to? Well, again, the text does not say. The title to the Hebrews is not original. It's very early, 2nd century. The content of Hebrews indicates that the intended audience was a congregation, a church of Jewish Christians who were under tremendous pressure, both externally from the Jews and internally, okay, in, in the midst of themselves and their own hearts, under tremendous pressure to renounce Christianity and to return to 1st century Judaism. Some people speculate that they were a congregation of Jewish Christians in Palestine. The reasons they give is that there's all these references to the tabernacle and the priesthood. They're obviously very familiar with these practices, and it has some similarities to the Dead Sea Scrolls. But most people think that this was a congregation of Jewish Christians located in Rome, especially in light of Hebrews 13.24. The author sends greetings from those from Italy. And the letter's familiarity to a certain early church father named Clement of Rome who references it in the early 90s A.D. So I'm going to stick with the consensus, the prevailing consensus today. I'm going to say that Hebrews is a sermon written by Apollos to a Jewish Christian church located in Rome. When? When was Hebrews written? Well, there's a couple of clues The first is that the Jewish temple and priesthood are still operating at the time this sermon was written, as evidenced by the fact that he repeatedly used, exclusively uses, the present tense. The priests stand ministering every day, he's going to say. And it would also be strange if if this happened after 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and the priesthood no longer existed, if the author whose intention in this entire sermon is, is, is to convince this church to get off the fence and step firmly into the new covenant and to abandon the practices of the old covenant if he didn't make some reference as if to say, if you don't believe me, just look at what God did to the temple. Right? He doesn't do that. Which tells us that it probably should be dated before 70 AD. The second clue is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32 and 34 where the author speaks of the congregation as having suffered persecution in some form of public reproach and the forfeiture of property. And Hebrews 12.4 when he says that though you've suffered, you haven't yet suffered to the point of shedding blood. So they've, they've suffered some persecution. People have taken away their property. They're, they're being slandered in public. But nobody's being killed yet. So if we're to try to place this and if it's true that they're in Rome, then we've got to date this before 64 AD when Nero started slaughtering Christians. So we've just backed the date up a little bit more. And probably after 49 AD, during the reign of Claudius, when the Christians had their property uh, confiscated and they were kicked out of Rome. So what I'm going to do, okay, here's my guesses, you with me? I think Hebrews is a sermon written by Apollos to a Jewish Christian church in Rome, probably sometime between 60 and 64 A.D. Last question. 
Why? Why was Hebrews written? We've already answered this, but it would, it would do well to repeat as we begin this study. The book of Hebrews, the sermon to the Hebrews, was written to establish the supremacy of Christ over every other contender to his throne. It was written to establish the supremacy of Christ and of the new covenant that he has mediated in his blood over against the prophets and the angels and Moses and Aaron and the Old Testament priesthood and the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus is better than them all, he says. And since Jesus reigns supreme and since he has offered the once for all sacrifice for sins, the congregation to whom this sermon was originally written, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, this congregation here, First Baptist Nixa, 2014. Here's why it was written. It was written that we may lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles and run with endurance the race that has been marked out for us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. It was written that we might consider, give thought to, meditate upon Him who endured such hostility at the hands of sinful men. And for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God on high. We should consider him who has endured such hostility so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. This sermon was written for our perseverance. It's a reminder to us that the day of half-hearted suburban pseudo-Christianity is past. Such a half-hearted faith will no longer do. It never did in the first place. The time has come to go all in with Christ. Hebrews 13, the time has come to go out to Him. Outside the camp, bearing His reproach. Because the Jesus presented in Hebrews is supremely worth any sacrifice. So with that introduction in mind, what I want to do in the time that remains this morning is I want, to, I want to just work our way through and unpack the eight statements about Jesus that the author gives in the first three verses. In this opening, we have the most succinct yet stunning Christology found anywhere in Scripture. And we're not going to spend a great deal of time on any one of these statements because we will return to unpack them in greater detail at different points throughout the book of Hebrews. This is sort of a thesis statement, as it were, for what's going to come in the rest of the 13 chapters. But I do want to proceed through these and to get just the picture in mind. What the author is doing is he is, he is going to put eight little tiles of a mosaic together and what's going to emerge from it as we step back at the end of this message and we gaze is a, is a majestic picture of the majestic Christ. So let's take a brief glance at each tile this morning. Number one, Jesus is the final revelation of God. The author begins, he wants us to know that Jesus is the full and final word. He's the perfect and complete revelation of the nature, the will, and the plan of God. 
God, after He spoke long ago in the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. Throughout the course of history, beginning with Adam and Eve, and continuing with Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Joshua, and Samuel, and David, and Elijah, and Elisha, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and many, many more. God spoke to His people. And He spoke to His people in or through the prophets. Different messengers, different methods, different messages. Always shadowy, always forward-looking, always in part, always incomplete. But he's telling us that in Jesus, God has given us everything. In Jesus, God has spoken one final time, and it is a full and complete and, and perfect word of redemption. Jesus is God's perfect messenger, and Jesus is God's perfect message. Jesus is God's perfect prophet, and Jesus is God's perfect prophecy. We are awaiting no further messenger, and we are awaiting no further message than what we have in Christ. God has spoken fully and finally in the person and in the work of His Son. All of the Old Testament points ahead to Him. All of the New Testament unpacks His person and His work. Here at the end of the ages, God has spoken to us, His people. He spoke to our fathers through the prophets. He has spoken to us here at the end of the ages in His Son. And He will speak no more. Because there's nothing more to say. The story is complete and perfect in Christ. Second, Jesus is the unique Son of God. He is spoken in His Son. Now throughout the sermon to the Hebrews, the author is going to make much of the truth that Jesus is the only Son. He is the Son in a way that no, none other are. Okay? We are the children of God, but only so far as we are in Christ. The angels at times in the Old Testament are called the sons of God, but never like this. God has one only begotten eternal Son. And as such, He is greater than the prophets, verses 1 and 2. He's greater than the angels, verses 5 and 6. He's greater than Moses, God's servant, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And this unique Sonship of Jesus is the basis for his argument that Jesus' word is greater than the words of the prophets. Jesus' glory is greater than the glory of the angels. And Jesus' covenant is greater than the covenant that came through Moses. In sending us his only begotten Son, God has sent us his last, his best. He sent us the incarnation of himself. Do you see then how dangerous it is to turn away from this Jesus and to turn away from His covenant, His gospel? It's in the context of the proclamation of this Jesus, the full and final Word, the only begotten Son of the living God, that we can hear these words. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. On the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of his covenant? You turned your back on Moses' covenant, you died. What's going to happen if you turn your back on Jesus' covenant? Number three. Jesus is the sole beneficiary of God. Because he is the unique son of God, he is also the one whom God has appointed heir of all things. Jesus, as the only begotten son of God, inherits everything that his father owns, which is everything. He is Lord of all. I'm reminded of the famous statement by the great Dutch theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper when he said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! (laughs) Everything. By virtue of His status as a Son and by virtue of His completed work of redemption, which the Father sent Him into the world to accomplish, Jesus now sits upon His glorious throne and He reigns over a kingdom that has no end. Heaven and earth belong to Him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The church belongs to Him. He purchased it with His own blood. Even His enemies belong to Him. And at the end of the age will bow their knee and will confess with their lips that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It all belongs to Him. The point being that if you turn away from this Jesus, there is nowhere else to turn. Lord of all. Number four, Jesus is the creative power of God. He's the one through whom also God made the world. What we're going to find in this book is an unblushing description of the deity of Jesus Christ. A deity of which Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and all of the cults know nothing. A Jesus who is the second person of the Trinity, who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. Just as the Father designed creation... And accomplished it in His Son. Even so, He designed redemption and accomplished it in His Son. God spoke creation to existence. And the word that that proceeds out of His mouth, which has the power to create that which was not, is Christ. He is the creative power of God. The Word made flesh. The Father spoke creation into existence and Jesus is the Word of His power. The Son is the Word of God by whom all things came into being. That Word which has become incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ to accomplish our redemption. Creator of all things. Jesus, number five, is the visible glory of God. And He is the radiance of His glory. That word radiance can mean one, or two, one of two things. It can mean radiation out from Or reflection back on. And I think the author is using it in the first sense and not 
in the second. He's using it in the idea of a, of a radiating out from and emanating out from. Jesus is not merely a mirror reflecting God's glory. Jesus is God's glory. He is, he is the glory of God stretched out to man. The radiance of God's glory. If God is the sun, Jesus is the rays of the sun of the same nature, of the same essence, of the same glory, of the same being stretching outward into creation that all creation may see His glory and give Him praise. This means that Jesus is of the same essence, the same substance as the Father. This is is Trinity stuff. The author of Hebrews presents us a Jesus who is both the Son of God and God the Son. Number six, Jesus is the perfect image of God. The idea here is of a a press on like a soft metal, maybe in the making of a coin, right? Where the press comes in and, and then comes off, and the image that is in the coin exactly matches the image that was on the press. And the point here is not that Jesus is essentially different from God in the way that the coin is essentially different from the press. Rather, the idea is that if you want to know what the press looks like, you ought to look at the coin. And if you want to know what the Father looks like, you ought to look at the Son. What is God like? If you want to answer that question, you may turn to the Gospels and you'll find him live and in living color. The radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Number seven, Jesus is the powerful word of God. He upholds all things by the word of his power. This is incredible. Not, not, not only did Jesus create all things, but he sustains all things. God created all things through Christ. He upholds all things through Christ. This is, this is stunning Christology. Jesus is presently, continuously, moment by moment, upholding, sustaining the creation that he himself spoke into existence. This is a dynamic activity, not static. This is an ongoing, a, an active sort of thing. Jesus is maintaining all of creation and is moving it toward the end for which he himself created. And in other words, it is Jesus who keeps every atom of of every particle of matter in every corner of the universe existing. And it is Jesus who so governs every atom of every particle of matter in every corner of the universe so that it exists for the purpose for which he created it. And he does this by the word of his power. Speaking ex nihilo, out of nothing. Let there be light and light. Let there be heavens and heavens. Let there be stars, stars. It goes beyond that to say that he is now sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, keeping the stars in orbit, keeping your atoms together. The word of Jesus has the power, it's word of his power, the power to create, the power to give life, the power to raise from the dead. Finally, 
he presents Jesus as the great high priest of God. A wonderful picture on which to end. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. From Jesus as creator and sustainer, we move on now to Jesus as redeemer. As I said, the author of Hebrews is going to make a big deal out of Jesus as our great high priest when we get to the middle section of this letter. He's going to present him not only as the high priest of our confession and the one mediator between God and man, but he's also going to present him as the sacrifice which the high priest himself presents. He goes into the heavenly tabernacle, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own precious blood. He goes to the altar of the cross and he, and he lays himself upon it and offers himself for our propitiation and receives in himself the due penalty for our sins. And then having offered the once for all perfect sacrifice, having completed the propitiation and the atonement and the purification of sins, God raised up our great high priest from the dead who then ascended into heaven and took his rightful seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sits because it's finished. The work of purification is done. And I hear the words of Luther ringing in, in the back of my head. There he says, herein lies the essence of the gospel. The verb tense here is that of a completed action. Purification is not ongoing. It's done. It's complete. It's finished. You cannot add to Christ's work of purification. Listen, beloved. There is nothing that you can go out from this room to do that will make you any more pure in the sight of God. Nothing. Flip that around. There's nothing that you could go out here and do which would render you any less pure in the sight of God. Purification once for all, saved to the uttermost. This is the power of imputed righteousness, which only has power when it's found in the righteousness of a divine son, a son like this. Why is that good news? Because we're guilty. And some of you came in this morning and you know the guilt of your sin and you feel it weighing you down like a burden on your back. And I would have you to stare verse 3 in the eyes and to justify before God why you're still carrying a burden. There is no justification for guilt when purification for sins has been made and the purifier has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Flawless atonement. Perfect purification. Righteousness before God does not come by works of penance. The attempt to make yourself more pure through the performance of certain deeds. Righteousness before God comes by resting in and knowing the purifier. And trusting in the work that he has done to render you pure in the sight of his Father. The message of Hebrews 1.3 is that it is finished and Jesus is Lord. I, th I think the author of Hebrews could have ended right here, hit the send button and been done with it. Case closed. Why? 
How could anyone walk away from this Jesus? How could anyone drift away and neglect the great salvation provided by this Savior? If only a fraction of what he has just said is true, there is nowhere else to turn and there is nowhere else to go and we have no other recourse than to fall on our faces before him and declare that he is Lord. There's nothing outside of Christ that is of any value. This Jesus is a Jesus who is worthy of our trust and worthy of our faith and worthy of our hope and worthy of our worship and worthy of any sacrifice that we may be called upon to give if only we may gain Christ. I want us to see this Jesus. Because if by the power of the Holy Spirit through the working of His sovereign grace the darkness of our mind is lifted and the blindness of our eyes is opened and we get a glimpse of this Jesus, we won't be able to get over it. We can't drift away. We can't walk away. There is no neglecting. Beloved, fix your eyes upon this Jesus. Consider Him who endured such hostility from sinful men against himself, so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Some of you here are weary. And you're losing heart. You need to consider him. Some of you feel as if your life is spinning out of control. You need to fix your eyes upon the Jesus who sits upon the throne and upholds all things, all things, all things, even you, by the word of his power. Some of you come in this morning having sinned grievously last night. Some of you come in bearing a burden of guilt that has never been removed from your shoulders. And oh, what you would give to be forgiven, to be pure. You need to fix your eyes upon the Jesus who made purification for sins. Which sins? Your sins. Which ones? All of them. And sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Some of you come in and you're cold. You're lukewarm. Your heart is crusty. Your life directionless. Or at least not heading in the direction of Christ. And you need to hear the warning. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And you need to fix your eyes upon the Jesus who seated upon His throne is Lord of all, saving all who come to Him and placing all of His enemies underneath His feet. You need to fix your eyes upon this Jesus. Our God and Father, I pray that You would open eyes throughout this auditorium. Open eyes that we may see Jesus.
We pray this in Christ's name.